0: Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today.
1: To me, this is 100% political theater. Like no one was serious about not paying the debts. And it's a kind of thing that like the media just loves covering because it creates stress for people. And like, it's a mood affiliation argument. And it's like, I, I'm fundamentally frustrated with the direction the US is, is going. So therefore I'm going to backfill my beliefs on fiscal policy when the reality is, this is kind of how
0: it's always worked. I almost studied climate. Um, I, I was the person who was going home and lecturing my parents about, you know, plastic water bottles and stuff. Like I was lecturing people about overpopulation, which is dead wrong, but all, all this stuff with these kind of ideas were were tools to show that I went to college, that I was morally a, a better person, and it's just so fascinating how within a decade, the overpopulation and the climate stuff has actually just like shown to be like incorrect on its own premises. Like I wonder at my climate class in college, if they're still teaching the same thing that they were they were teaching, because it's fascinating how disproven it has been and yet how little reflection there has been in the process where it actually the concern is underpopulation. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Let's get into it. Dan, let's uh, let's start talking about the the Apple headset.
1: Still rumor, but um, where there's a lot of smoke, there's probably a fire. Uh, it seems like Apple is going to be announcing their virtual reality headset next week. And it's at their WWDC event, which I think is important because it's developer focused. right? Like Apple traditionally has two big events a year. WWDC, which happens in June, that's for people who are building apps within the entire Apple ecosystem, iOS being the dominant one. And... Then they announce new hardware, typically in September. I think the original iPhone was announced in January and then was released in June. But but soon thereafter, Apple for the last decade has gotten into this kind of software updates are announced in June at WWDC, gives developers some time to get their apps ready for what inevitably becomes the new version of the iPhone in September. Um, and then there are other products that kind of sprinkle in. You know, sometimes they'll announce the 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 new laptop or something that's more developer centric at WWDC iPads can randomly just show up whenever, but Apple Apple's big product is the iPhone. Right. And so the fact that they're doing a hardware announcement at WWDC, a it's, it's a new platform, right? So it's like, it's going to be, I think the, the name that people are betting on is it's going to be called instead of iOS, it's gonna be called reality OS. And it's going to be a headset, so it's going to look like an Oculus Rift, but it's supposedly mixed reality, so that includes both virtual reality VR, where you you kind of completely can't interact with the world you're in, and it's supposed to be kind of like internal, and then AR, augmented reality, where you're actually going to be able to interact with, maybe be able to see something on a table and, and kind of like play around with it, at least from the digital side of things. I think a couple other things that are important, I'm like a big Apple watcher, have been for 20 years. So, uh, one Apple's already laid the foundation for a lot of this stuff with what they call AR kit. And to date, most of it's been gimmicky, but if you want to try this on your iPhone right now, um, just use uh, type measurement into the phone for searching for the app. And if you haven't uninstalled it, there's a ruler that actually is pretty accurate. So you can kind of go to a part, part of your room or a windowsill, press the button, move the phone, press it again, and then you can step back and you can actually see the, um, the measurement in kind of this augmented reality uh and then there are a bunch of other kind of like gimmicky things that apple has done from an augmented reality standpoint uh i'm pretty sure niantic which is the you know pokemon go creator which you know, has had its moment in the sun that actually leveraged uh leveraged a lot of these ar functionality although maybe they have their own proprietary thing but ultimately apple's had this in the iphone for i want to say five years uh maybe even longer. And that's partially because they've probably been working on this hardware, knowing that we want to get the foundation for this infrastructure in place so that when we finally have a headset um, that we're happy to ship, we we have developers who are, are comfortable with working on the augmented reality side of things. So a couple of things about the headset rumor that has already created like a bunch of media buzz. And and I actually posted a meme this morning about this because like the media covers Apple the exact same way every time we could talk. But one is—it uh, sounds like there's going to be an external battery pack, so like think of like a fanny pack with the battery, which people are saying that's apple like because you know, like think about all of the devices—they're always super sleek and, and slim—and it's going to be three thousand dollars, so that that's pretty expensive. So let's let's take those two things. So if the first is if it, if it's a piece of developer hardware, you know, geared towards early adopters and developers you can kind of look at the original iPhone was way more expensive than other phones at the time with a limited set of features. Um, if you really go far back, like, I think the, like Apple, I want to say the Lisa or the original Macintosh If you just for inflation is probably on the order of $3,000 or or more. So like the idea that like all new technology has to be cheap, I don't actually think is necessarily true. Now, are they going to sell a hundred million of these things? No, I think that the estimate is, is something closer to that they're trying to sell 10 million, but I also think that there's um, Apple was very good with this. I think I want to say what it's with the iPad. So the original iPad, I think, was, was the rumor was it was going to be fifteen hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Then I think the original one came out at five hundred. So it's a little bit of like Apple's notorious that they don't leak or they don't they don't pronounce no. anything, and then there are leaks. But if you can play the media off where you 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 float it out there that it's going to be really expensive, and then it comes in lower than whatever the the rumor, which is definitely like $3,000 has been the consistent rumor for months now. That kind of like under promise over over deliver, I think is going to be good from a media narrative standpoint. And then I think the battery pack, it's like, have you ever used like an Oculus uh, Quest?
0: Uh, No, I've not.
1: Okay. So this is the Facebook product. They're kind of bulky. And and I know Facebook pre-announced product, which we can also talk about. But um, I think Whereas Apple always just shines is like the, they're fundamentally going to make hardware that like is kind of like comfortable to use, and it'll take them some iterations. But I, I think if if they do end up having this external battery packets, it's because it actually significantly enhances the the usability of the actual headset itself. Will they always have to have a battery pack? Probably not. Like just look at like the iteration on the iPhone or or Apple Watch or or MacBooks. Like they're gonna. Be able to shrink that stuff down over time. My my sense is that anyone who's going to go buy one of these headsets is already going to kind of look goofy, and they're not going to really care that there's an external battery pack. Now, if the external battery pack is super hot, and like they somehow didn't do the QA for kind of you know having it be something that's like hurting you or uncomfortable, that will be a major screw up. And I mean, uh, a recent product they released the Studio Display, their like brand new uh, monitor last year. And they were talking about how they had like a built-in camera and it was awful. And it was just like, okay, like you have these amazing cameras on an iPhone yet the the one that you put into a display, like it sucks. So they can have misses, but I think given this is a high profile thing, I I think it'd probably be okay. And I think that the reality is the way the media will cover this is they're going to talk about all the negatives because gadget reviewers just love coming up with with negative things because it makes them seem like they're, you know, they're critical or whatever. The reality is you're going to have a whole bunch of people buy it because it's from Apple. There's a whole existing ecosystem of app developers on iOS, which it'll be really easy for those people, I think, to go and experiment with making their app that works on the kind of 2D phone into you know, 3D or augmented reality. And like I mentioned before, ARKit has existed. And if they can sell you know 10 million of them, they're going to have a new version next year that will be even more improved and probably cheaper. and or, or the previous model will be discounted like they do with iPhones and then there'll be a new top of the line one. And three or four years from now, we're going to be, it'll have kicked off a whole new segment of the market. And now the, the question is, is, like, is this an iPhone level big product or is it call it Apple Watch or AirPods, right? And, and here's a fun thing. So just go Google AirPods revenue Apple into Google. And there's probably like one of the top results. We'll talk about how much AirPods revenue Apple generates relative to like the size of entire companies, right? Like Fang referred to Netflix at one point. AirPods is as big as Netflix, like as it was like a business, right? And those are just headphones. And so I think like Apple sometimes, like everything is always compared to the iPhone. And it's like, yeah, like it's the most successful consumer electronics product of, of the modern era it's hard to unseat the the GOAT, right? But I think like something that is AirPod sized in terms of a market, like that's that's multi-hundred billion dollars worth of market cap that will add to Apple, which at this point a two trillion dollar company, it's like very hard to move the needle for them. And so I think that um the you'll just watch all of the media coverage for the most part be really, really negative. Uh, and then I actually think people who use the product will actually say it's like pretty good. And then as the app developers actually start to tinker around with it and play with it, that's where it's, it's start going to start to get better. Uh-huh. And then everything with Apple, it'll be like three or four generations later, it'll actually be pretty refined and and they'll have solved a lot of the the, the common complaints. The New York Times had an article yesterday with like they're, they, they've lumped Apple into this metaverse concept that Facebook created. And it's it's you know something. It's like the metaverse is is cooling, and Apple's jumping right in. So first of all, Apple's never used the term metaverse. I think that there's been a couple of execs have mentioned at different points in, in speeches or whatever that they like they don't use the term metaverse. That's that's like Facebook's term. It's like pretty hardcore geeky. Um, comes from what, what book? Snow Snow Crash, right? Uh, yeah. So um, I think it's like the the media wants to portray Apple as the same as as like. Facebook. And the reality is they're very different, right? Like they're a hardware and software vertically integrated company. Facebook is a software company that bought a hardware company. Um, And and here's a good example. Facebook, supposedly the market leader in VR, just pre announced the Oculus, or I guess they don't call it the Oculus anymore, the Quest 3. And then they're going to release it in September, three days before this this, Apple announcement is, is coming out. The market leader doesn't pre-announce a new product if, if they're confident that their, their product is good. You do that because you want the media cycle to actually say, and Facebook's quest, forthcoming quest three because the media is just going to try to do what it always does where it's like iOS and Android, like that they're roughly equivalent. And it's like, no, Android is used more outside the US for sure. But the reality is wealthy developed countries, specifically the US, like iOS is, is dominant. Yeah, I just would say to any listener, just look at the media coverage of this product, and then we can do a fast forward a year from now and see how it's well received with consumers. It's it's, it's classic, like kind of like uh, media distortion because they're going to have
0: an. You said media covers Apple in a certain way. Is that is that the way? Is it is it always initially negative?
1: They try to create drama, right? It's like uh, oh, like there there have competitors like at their heels, and the reality is it's like they've, they've been writing that story about Android for I don't know a decade hasn't it, Apple's increased market share in the US, right? Because they've ultimately the original thing was it was just too expensive, or it didn't have 3G, or it didn't have copy paste, or the system isn't open, right? And so this is open versus closed ecosystems. Like, and and you're talking to someone trying to build a permissionless decentralized protocol. So like I very much understand the power of those systems and, and I want to see more of them in the world. But the revealed preference from consumers is that they want tightly integrated really easy to use, delightful experiences. And that's what Apple is is able to go do, right? Like Apple can charge us 30% tax on, on the App Store because people prefer the, the good user experience relative to the open ecosystem that is Android, right? Like the average user doesn't care about any of that stuff. And so I think Apple excels because A, they, they get that culturally. And then B, when, when you're actually building Whole stack and Apple's to this point building its own silicon. So, like, they're increasingly less and less reliant on third party, uh, you know, kind of vendors. And so, that they have a proprietary advantage the whole way up the stack, right? So, it's like every part of the phone hardware is dialed in all the way down to the silicon. And so, the user experience is just going to be better. I mean, this is why Tesla has the same approach with cars, right? It's like they just don't want to be relying on other people. It's, it's, it's the exact same approach in the sense that they don't have uh, dealers, right? It's like Tesla, you buy it from Tesla, software updates from Tesla, like all of the, as much as the car as they can is, is actually built by Tesla. Um, Elon has the same approach for SpaceX. Yeah, they have, they have third party supply chain. I mean, at a big scale, you, you have to, so, so does Apple. But the more tightly controlled you can, you can have of that ecosystem, the higher quality of the product that you can go build. Right. And I think that generally consumers have kind of like two points of view on this. Most people want cheap stuff, like the classic, like just buy cheap stuff made in China at Walmart, but for a certain set of, uh, products in their lives, they actually really care about the status signal from it and, and that kind of ease of use iPhone being one of them, right? Like iPhone communicates to other people in the U S that you're, you're of a certain socioeconomic status. It's just like kind of a, a thing. And so I think like you, and you know, the classic green bubble, blue bubble. And and so I think that like figuring out where a product should be in that, like, you know, it's like, do people actually just care about commodity or do they care about the higher status thing? And in the case of a phone where it's attached to you all the time, it's like kind of almost like the extension of your body, that higher status, higher quality thing is actually something that people are willing to, to kind of go through.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at SecureFrame.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Ben Thompson used to write about how the iPhone and the success of the iPhone relative to Android went against or even broke the Clayton Christensen disruptive innovation model because they, you know, I think the model would have predicted that Android would have come in as cheaper and served, you know, a different audience um, and then moved up the stack um, and, and served, you know, the people using iPhones, but it never did.
1: Yeah, so Benton has two, I think, all-time great blog posts. One is aggregation theory, which we could, we could talk about, but the other one is what Clayton Christensen got wrong and it specifically talks about the iPhone. I think where Clayton Christensen's framework for, you know, the innovator's dilemma makes a lot of sense is in kind of enterprise because it is very focused on logical decision making of like very clear things that you're optimizing for, typically cost, right? Um, so his example in the, in the book that is kind of like the base level example is like the mini mills and, and how kind of like a certain type of steel production worked its way up the value chain. And it's like the natural way of doing that. He then took the same thing and applied it to PCs. But I think where the PC analogy doesn't work is the PC analogy is this kind of weird quirk where you had Microsoft had the software layer and then Intel had the chip layer. And it, so basically the, all the value occurred to those two, mostly to Microsoft. But the kind of like delivery of the hardware, like Dell, Dell, compact, like the, the, the PC makers. Basically, that was a race to the bottom commodity business, like razor thin margins. And, and when he is writing kind of this like prediction for Android, that MacBook hadn't actually kind of taken off, Apple did not have their own custom silicon. So he, his view was, okay, well, Apple's using all, all the off the shelf components. Other people are just going to come in and be able to, to leverage all of the, the cost curve that Apple's going to get in terms of whether it's like the arm chips or the batteries or all that kind of stuff. And then the reality is it's like a decade later, one consumer preference is actually something that is not as, it's, it's a little bit more irrational from a kind of like not strictly just cost. It's like aesthetics, like how people make people emotionally feel. But then the second thing is Apple actually created a compounding advantage where more and more of the phone is proprietary at this point. And, and, and very much starting with the silicon and Apple is, I think that some estimates usually are that they're one or two years ahead a lot of the time, just like from raw performance of their chips. It's like performance per watt, basically. So it's like with phones, you have to have like performance, but you also want it to be battery efficient. And Apple kind of like exceeds on on both of those things. And so Samsung is stuck buying whatever like Qualcomm is working on, which tends to be behind. And I think that the lead is accelerating. And you're seeing this with like Apple Silicon now and Max. And so, so yeah, I think like Benton nailed that and he nailed it decade ago, basically. And, and I think it's it's only continued to be right. I think one other thing about the headset is people have this kind of wrong frame in technology about the first mover advantage. And the reality is actually, there are plenty of examples in these markets where the last mover is the one that actually ends up winning or, or resets the paradigm. Two, two examples. One is the iPhone, right? Like iPhone was not the first smartphone. But it redefined what a smartphone was, right? Everything. If you there's like some great images online where you have the the smartphones pre iPhone, and then like within a year or two, everything just drops the keyboard because like the the pane of glass is clearly the right model for for what consumers want, uh, much to the chagrin of people who are really fast at typing on their BlackBerry. Uh, another one is Facebook, right? Facebook was not the the first social network. If anything, it was um, you know, way behind MySpace. And I think people, you know, we're, we're calling it the college social network. Like, oh yeah, like this, this is popular at colleges, but it won't necessarily scale. And actually, okay, like now it's 3 billion people use it a day and it still exists years later, whereas most of those social networks from that era are, are all gone, right? If Facebook doesn't buy Instagram, potentially Facebook's already been replaced by something. So, so is it this like first mover advantage is, I think it's situation specific the thing with headset is like yeah facebook's had oculus since whenever i don't know 20 2015 2017 I, I actually don't remember when they acquired that company but it has been not mainstream at all right and and google tried a little bit of AI or, uh, vr stuff i think sony with playstation but i think you're going to quickly see it'll it'll just be like that that uh, iphone image where like everything pre iphone like this is what smartphones look like and then everything post, I think you're going to see the same thing happen. And I think that the other thing that that's tough for Facebook is what worked really well for Android, and and, and where, where did Android really gain share? Gain share from like Nokia, Ericsson, like some of these like old school phone manufacturers who, you know, the, the little classic Nokia phones that were sold all over the world, like those, for the most part, people replace those with Android users. I think you're going to see probably... The same thing in the sense, I mean, it's obviously a way smaller market today, but like, I don't think Facebook has some advantage in a world where Apple's going to release this product and over the next two or three years, they're going to iterate. Samsung is probably where a bunch of the components that Facebook is, you know, building their, uh, you know, their, their headset with today, because Samsung makes the memory, Samsung makes screens. They're just going to copy whatever Apple does. And so then they're going to have like an advantage because that's all in-house for Samsung. And I think Google will have a natural interest in extending Android and by giving it away for free and allowing people to mod it like that ecosystem. And I, and I want to even say that the the like MetaQuest operating system is based on Android. I think it might be, even be a fork. So it's not even like it's like that far off. So I think Facebook is in a really, really tough, tough spot. Um, I, I admire the... the willingness to go after this, but I think it's like a, they basically made their bed when they killed the their phone project and like building a hardware culture at a software company doesn't seem like it's actually done well. I mean, Microsoft is probably the most successful at it in the sense that they, I mean, I, Google to a certain degree, but I think Google really has, has excelled just at the, the building the operating system and give it away for free. Whereas Microsoft, I mean, Xbox is a meaningful Business line for them, and that, that's that's hardware based.
0: Zuck has been obsessed with trying to own a platform since forever, because you know he's just living on Apple territory. VR, AR, this is technology that's been you know look, looked looked f- forward to for decades. Literally, people have been trying for you know thirty years, and it's been much more disappointing than than AI and and, and crypto. Um, and people have tried; they've spent decade plus working in it, and we we haven't really seen much yet. We're, we're talking about what we're about to see, but when you reflect on the last couple decades of this? Is it the case that it just takes longer than you think? Or did people get something wrong? Like, w- w- what is it going to take for, for this to be, you know, really something? And then two, I guess, when you reflect towards the future, how do you think people are going to be using this? Like, w- w- what is going to be the the world in which this is prevalent? And what is that going to look like on a day to day level?
1: Yeah, so I think Mark uh, Andreessen has given some good perspective here, and, and both on just like, his experience showing up in 1994, thinking he was late to Silicon Valley, that the internet had been hailed for a while, or, or you know, the information superhighway, and like, it was kind of disappointing. And then, then it obviously took off. Um, machine learnings ex- existed for a really long time. I'm not a historian in that world, but I think it's like, I want to even say it's like the late 60s or early 70s, people were talking about the, the you know, AI in, in its kind of proto form. And, and each kind of subsequent generation of, of new tech, hardware technology, people were kind of excited about it, right? Like AI was like machine learning, chatbots a decade ago. And and so I think all of this stuff, it just takes time and there's a natural tendency for humans to hype things like new, but then actually nailing all the details and actually shipping a product to market that people can use and find useful. Easier, easier said than uh, done. And I think... Crypto I actually don't think is, is more successful than VR. I think from a monetary standpoint, it has been. but I think from a, like an actual use case standpoint for, for everyday consumers, I think that there's still a lot of work to do there, right? Um, but crypto is only 15 years old in terms of the, the cryptocurrency component of things, right? Like there were predecessor versions of some of this. And so I think all these, these technologies, Carlo de Perez has the, the technology hype cycle thing. I guess it's called the Gartner hypothetical now, but but basically you kind of have this irrational exuberance. It comes down and there's a trough of despair, and then there's a slow buildup over time. I think what might be different about crypto is because it's so financialized, um, you, you can actually have a lot of those loops. Whereas uh, something like VR, yeah, you have a company like Oculus come around or, or Magic Leap, and then there's kind of like a big hype around it. And then it's like, wow, this is really hard. We need to go build it. Oculus didn't stay an independent company, right? Sold, sold to Facebook, and and so kind of has existed in a research phase. And not to say that Facebook's not taking it seriously and, and hasn't made progress there. Apple benefits from just watching what's happening, right? And so it's like if it, let's say they started working on this five years ago or you know ten years ago, like some protoform in a, in a lab. Just watch what what's happening with Facebook. If things start to take off. So now you copy that and, and apply Apple stuff to it. And I think so So for them, they've had the luxury of time of just like waiting to get it right. And they're finally at a place where they think that they have a product. Is it 100% perfect? No, but it, it, it's, it, it meets their threshold to, to actually ship something out there. You know, it, it, it's the same thing with the iPhone, right? Like there were smartphones that have this iPod project. How, how can we actually kind of go do it? Uh, you know, Tony Fidel has uh, great, great stories on, on this stuff but then they finally get to a place where it's like okay this is actually usable and we're willing to ship it with with some of these trade-offs. And so I just actually think it's it's gotten to the point where it's like okay this is the right actual time if Apple is getting into it. Whereas I think a lot of other companies tend to ship things way way too early and then that actually sours consumer
0: sentiment. G- Google always. glass a famous example.
1: Yeah, and it's just but but I think part of that is like if you're a hardware company that values user experience and design like Apple, like you're going to have a very different culture than companies that are good at announcing new products and then not necessarily following through on them. Right. Google has that culture. Um, I didn't, I don't actually know where Facebook was on that. I I think Facebook traditionally was like a little bit more like announce it when you're shipping it, but I think when you're in a moment of weakness, you're going to pre-announce things. Microsoft is really famous for this, where it's like Microsoft research would have these insane video demos. If you like type Microsoft research tech demo into Google. It's like all this stuff that with all these like really brilliant people were working on. And then it kind of never got commercialized. It's actually a fun anecdote I saw recently that Satya Nadella like brought the head of Microsoft Research. And I think like Microsoft research has been considered for a very long time, like maybe not as much um, more recent praise relative to you know some of the like Google X or you know Deep Brain or all this sense. But it's the same problem. It's like you have these really smart people who are building the kind of like future in a lab, but there's no like commercial incentive and like kind of there's corporate bureaucracy and like no one actually, not invented here syndrome even within its own company. Um, whereas you have a, a hungry startup like ChatGPT or OpenAI and they're able to out, out compete, right? It's like transformers were invented by Google and OpenAI was the one that actually realized that you could actually go
0: commercialize
1: this. The, the paradigm shifting moments happen By last movers a lot of times because they're able to have the luxury of observing how things have happened and then kind of taking the the lessons both the good and the bad mostly the bad and then trying to kind of correct for that to your point about like what does this world look like i mean predicting the future is always a little not that productive but i think the rumors here have been that apple has some version of facetime that they're excited about i think if it's like with those memojis i think it's going to be kind of gimmicky just like people making fun of Zuck for the you know, meta horizons avatar in front of the Eiffel tower. But I do think um, virtual presence. So the ability for you to actually have uh, a zoom call that feels more in the same room. And Google actually has a technology that doesn't even involve a headset. It's like kind of this TV that they have. I forget the name of the, the project. You can. Google. Do you think we're wearing headsets
0: a significant amount of time or is it not really?
1: If I was to guess, I don't think it's replacing the average knowledge worker's workflow anytime soon. But I do see the ability for this to be one. I think um, developers, if if they want to be able to play around with kind of like call infinite screen real estate, assuming it's the fidelity is there, uh, that could be pretty interesting. And I think contrasted to to Meta, which I think like they they have some like you can in theory do code editing in. in That, But the reality is meta then is dependent on a a computer that they don't control, whereas Apple is going to have the full stack of a MacBook, right? And so you can imagine like the next generation of the MacBook has some special chip. Here's a good example. Most people don't realize that AirPods actually have a different chip than just Bluetooth that is like an ultra wideband chip. So this is a custom silicon Apple's made for AirPods that can communicate to other, you know, iPhones or or MacBooks. So you can imagine that their ability to actually connect a MacBook over the next few iterations to one of these headsets in a way that is privileged from a kind of just uh, like only Apple can do it because they they actually have all of your other devices at the hardware level and, and the operating system is, I think, something to not understate. And so if, if you can actually get the resolution there and then a developer can actually start using this in a different way that makes them more productive then I, th- I think that that's a class of people that will adopt this relatively quickly. Uh, I think that there's the Google Glass, like AR version of things, and maybe there's some niche use cases that, that people start to play around with. But I think honestly, the, the awkwardness factor is a huge, huge deal. And so developers working in a room or around other developers, they, they're going to probably be fine with it. I also think the entertainment thing here, here's something that Facebook doesn't have. Like they've dabbled in entertainment stuff. Apple has like, I think they won an Academy Award for the whatever film about blind people or something last year. And they have like award-winning TV shows, right? Ted Lasso and things like that. So all of that, plus the fact that they just did this MLS deal. And, and I think that they now have like one of the other major sports leagues, they, they might have something, maybe MLB or something. So they're going to, be able to go and take all this proprietary content and actually adapt it to this headset in a way that Meta trying to convince the studios in Hollywood to do stuff, right? It's like, eh, okay, you're not that big, but Apple can just do it and just say we're gonna we're gonna do it as a way to grow the, the headset volume. I think that that that's pretty powerful. Apple has a huge music app, right? So you could imagine some visualization where I can now go Apple Classical and instead of like having to be in a major city. Like I, I went to the LA Phil recently at the Walt Disney Theater. Amazing experience, right? I'm not even a classical music person. just kind of being there for the culture. But the the ability to potentially have like some crazy high fidelity experience so that you anywhere in the world could actually put on this headset with maybe Apple AirPods and get spatial audio and just feel like you're actually at the concert, th- they're going to be able to go do that. And even if they just do it as a kind of like Showcasing what's possible that's going to be able I think enough to to help drive drive the narrative and so they're kind of vertically integrated not only from the headset software the fact that they have this pre-existing app ecosystem which is huge pre-existing user ecosystem with, with attached credit cards that's also huge but then they also have all this content that um, they' they've been building and so I, uh, I, I think it's going to be a massive success and and the time frame we can debate but i think if 5 years from now when we look back it's just like uh, that was so obvious that this was going to be another kind of iphone like moment relative to vr ar now whether or not the headset is something that every american or you know every developed world person has and there's like a cheaper version for people around the world that i i don't have as good of an idea maybe maybe it's like the mac right or or airpods or uh, the watch. So still, still a massive business, but maybe not the same size as the
0: iPhone. So if, if AI, uh, you know, augments or replaces kind of human cognition, um, and it gives everyone a doctor or lawyer kind of, you know, whatever, uh, expertise they, they, they need, you think what VR, AR or what sort of mixed reality does is it collapses, um, kind of like location or remote. Like we're always together, uh, in a similar fidelity way, even if we're in different places. Like, do you think that's the, the real impact of it? Well, I think we talked about this last time with
1: FaceTime, right? So how much of a miracle is FaceTime? I can I can be like just walking around with my with my son and call his grandparents on the other side of the country and then they can have a conversation about the ice cream that he's eating. Like that's that's a pretty amazing thing. But that's shoved into a you know 2D piece of glass. My sense is if if they can nail the and this is a big if this concept of the uncanny valley where, you know, like digital representations of people traditionally, just like humans are extremely dialed in on like, okay, this, this something is off, right? All the micro expressions that we have, it's just very hard to do. But I think of a a world where fast forward, just kind of like the hardware continues to improve. The AI continues to improve. Like look at mid journey, like 5.1 versus mid journey three. It's just insane. And so Take Midjourney. There's this company Runway ML. I'm not an investor in any of these things, by the way. Just kind of observations. So assume assume Runway ML, which is the video one, or or others get better and better. Like think of like the Zoom or Google Meet touch up that they do. Like it's only just going to get that much better. And so you can imagine now, like, and and here's where Apple can start to do like crazy stuff. You know how you kind of do that thing with your head uh, when you're setting Face ID up when a new iPhone. I think that that, uh, the phone actually has a LiDAR detector, which means it's shooting all these like little lasers at your face to like actually get some level of depth. And I think that that's been available in ARKit for a while. So what if Apple just for the last few years has been actually adding all these sensors so that you can actually map your face in a high fidelity way and then layer on some level of AI on top of it to just like really like, oh, I'm I'm gonna look at your photo rolls and take all of the photos of you over the entire history, and then just kind of like make a composite where it actually starts to get to the level of fidelity that it, it, it passes the uncanny valley. And so now I can have a headset on, but then the two of us can actually be having a call and, and, and you feel there and the latency is like good. Like This is all a lot of big what ifs, but, but if you just actually start to think about the pieces that Apple has available to be able to go do this and, and, and the ability that they can ship a new version of the iPhone with a new sensor specifically to help for this kind of stuff, just no, no one has that ability. And so i i i'm i'm bullish on it like i think it'll be people overestimate its 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 likelihood to happen in the short term like and i think that's an area that critics will be right in the sense that it is weird and it's like oh okay i'd rather be on a zoom call than you, you know the the vr facetime but on the three three-year horizon i think it'll it'll get really good i mean just look at how fast that that like video calls in the last 10 years to, to think that you would do like an investment pitch over a video call 10 years ago, like, no, you go to Sand Hill Road and you do all that, whereas now that's like the default way. And, and so I think just norms can shift pretty fast. And so if, if all of a sudden Silicon Valley companies are like, well, if I'm already coding in this thing, why would I take my thing off so that I can look at this like crappy little camera on my desk because it makes you feel better? We're just going to try to solve this with, with some ML or software or whatever. And maybe it won't even be Apple's FaceTime. FaceTime is useful for consumers, but the, the professional person uses Zoom or, or Google Meet. And, and I think that there will probably be an amazing opportunity for people to do that. People will sell other hardware that, that help you do that. Maybe there will be some high status thing where you go in and you get like this crazy scan of your face. And then some company is able to like boost your avatar so that it like really, really looks like you.
0: We were talking about Apple... I want to talk more about facebook slash meta they've made a couple of massive bets over the past few years one in the crypto space with libra and the other obviously with the the metaverse you know kudos to the man in the arena you know disclaimers aside and and they've been doing phenomenal you know i remember in december we were in puerto rico and you're like hey people are really bearish on on meta right now but i'm i'm making a bet there and and that proved accurate but re- reflect on these two what were these two bets like, what was the thinking at the time and with the benefit of hindsight did that thinking make sense? Like, were, were these two failures? How do we reflect on on you know were, were these worthy bets and how they went about the bets?
1: Yeah, so I guess I should disclose I am a uh, meta meta shareholder in the sense that I when the stock got under a hundred I was like okay I'm not much of a stock trader but th- this is a company that has insane product market fit with its core products like they still continue to increase daily active users, Instagram like. The, the pivot to reels, classic stated versus reveal preference. We've talked about this before, where people were complaining about it, and the reality is they spend more time on it. It's replacing TV. I think that you have this other thing is if TikTok actually gets banned, that meta gets all of that market cap basically, at least from the US side of things. So I, I i just very bullish on Meta's like core business. even with like you know Metaverse stuff, which I think is now going to look really prescient, albeit they're going to be behind on the hardware. Apple's success here will show that Zuck actually was right. It doesn't give you any credit as much as like, I think that they're at least going to be better positioned to actually execute for the social products that they have in, in this kind of a world um, because they at least have some of that DNA is, is what I think. Like, even if they don't win on the hardware and the platform, they're going to just like the, the the muscle that they've built internally for this stuff, you know, kind of make sure that they don't miss this. And remember, it took Facebook a while uh, to go mobile first, basically, as a company. Because I guess we were at the IPO that they hadn't really made that conversion. Antonio catalogs a lot of this in, in Chaos Monkeys in the sense that um, that was kind of a full pivot for Facebook to, to kind of think of itself as a bubble company by WhatsApp, by Instagram. Like best executed strategy from a just like pure CEO standpoint in the last 10 years, maybe other than Satya in terms of taking the Ballmer or Microsoft and then turning it into what it is today. Oh, so, so Libra. Let's talk about that. So, I, I know David Marcus, uh, who was running that project. Um, you know, he's a friend, and I think that they unfairly got caught up in Facebook bad because of like the bogus Cambridge Analytica story and like blaming Facebook for Russian misinformation, which made Hillary Clinton lose the election. Like, if you if you actually try to look through any of that stuff, like the dollar amounts were insanely small. Like, it didn't actually make a difference. But it's just this kind of myth that's. That's been perpetuated by the mainstream media, because I, I look at it as it, it's something that they don't control. Maybe Facebook and Twitter and YouTube were captured until Elon showed up. And, and I think in some ways that's taken a little bit of the heat off of Meta. Um, you know, Facebook has this like oversight Supreme Court board that like does moderation or like it's just like these weird structures. But that's all as a result of just getting hammered for for being blamed for having Trump be elected. The, the thing that Meta has going for it more than anything else is that it's, it's, it's founder-led, right? And a super voting share set of found. Right? So so Zuck kind of decides, okay, I want to reduce middle management at the company. Boom. He doesn't have to convince a board. He doesn't have to, He just says, do it. He, he's actually getting, so I think, some good press right now with his like jujitsu, the Murph thing that he he claimed to have run under like 40 minutes, which puts him in like the 0.1% of fitness people. So I think that there's like um, a little bit of a renaissance for Zuck right now in the sense that I think people are appreciating, yeah, he's actually he took a bunch of ads, some of them didn't work or maybe they're going to be delayed in how they work, but uh, he's, he's very much there. I think that the other thing is like this llama model that, that got leaked from Facebook. I mean, there's now a leaked thing from Google where it basically said that like our competitive advantage is, is essentially gone because this open source model built by Facebook is is going to kind of eat away into the kind of like Google proprietary advantage and and I don't I don't know open AI's position. but but what would be interesting to think of is 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 the sudden charm offensive from Sam uh, and and Google, right around like, oh, we need responsible regulation a fear of Facebook's llama model actually just continuing to grow because it's open source and out there <laughs> the The demise of Facebook was, was greatly overstated. Um, and I think it's, it's very online people, the types of people who like to, to gripe about Facebook on Twitter, who are really not core uh, you know, Facebook users to begin with. It's like, okay, like the average American loves Instagram.
0: If you were at Facebook, what, what would you have done differently?
1: I was actually thinking about this the other day. And, and caveat is like, okay, this is just complete uh, fantasy world, right? Like <laughs> I didn't build Facebook and I wasn't there. I think in retrospect, they should have continued on the phone. And the the natural extension of that would have been, even if it didn't work, just saying we're going to take a 10-year bet to become good at hardware and understand it and try some crazy strategies. Like if you're a a power Facebook user or Instagram user, like we're going to give you this or we're going to make a phone that is the ultimate creator phone. And it's a high status thing that Facebook, the only way you can get this is Facebook sends it to you if you're like an Instagram person with, so, so it becomes this kind of thing where it's like a Birkin bag where it's like, oh shit, you have this like crazy phone that like your Instagram app is different like you, because you have enough followers. And so I think random ideas like that where they could have just basically said, we're never going to beat Apple and Android at the mass market, but we actually want to create a high status thing. Because I actually think being an influencer on Instagram with a lot of followers is actually high status. If if you look at it, like high status people have Instagram. In terms of the celebrity culture, right? Like I think like truly high status people don't really use social media, Uh, maybe Twitter. But I think Instagram is, is the highest status product that Facebook has. And so like that would have been the bet. It's like branded as the Instagram phone. Like in some ways, Snap tried to do this, but I actually don't think Snap ever had a truly public product. It was a very kind of like messaging app that, that kind of like had this like looser version of a social network, whereas Instagram is like Twitter in the sense that it's unidirectional broadcast. I mean, look, I think that the obvious thing in retrospect is Apple's bet on, I think it was um, the name of the company was PA Semiconductor. I want to say it was bought in 2014, single, single best strategic move of, of any of the big tech companies in the last 10 years, because now they're they're they have a silicon advantage and they can just like build like the, the future for the hardware starting with the chip, right? Like you don't, you're not all, because everyone else has to wait for Qualcomm or in, you know, NVIDIA in the case of these GPUs to release a new product. Then that is TSMC in, in Taiwan, right? And then everyone fights over who gets access to the latest and greatest, right? And so this whole GPU thing, you know, Nvidia just hit trillion dollar market cap, right? What's the one company that actually potentially could can compete here? It's it's Apple. It's not going to be tomorrow, and it's not never going to be like put it in data centers. But Apple can can change their silicon roadmap in a way where they continue to add more GPU or kind of machine learning type functions to their silicon. So then instead of doing it in a data center, you can do more on, on device, quote the edge. Apple Apple has privilege access to TSMC foundry space, right? So, so so the way to think about it is like TSMC is is the like building the world's like leading chips, right? Like 3 nanometer like the the leading edge. The first dibs goes to Apple. So Apple can decide what they want to do with the the certain amount of the stuff and then I think probably the next one is probably Nvidia. So, so Apple actually gets like the privilege access here and so I think that is um Hard to say like Facebook should have bought a chip company, but I think if you had stuck with the phone and then realized, hey, we actually want to like keep going and we're gonna use the free cash flow from this, this juggernaut of the social network that we'd continue to grow. And we're just gonna keep doing things to try to make our phone differentiated. And 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 maybe the other thing that they could have done, which look at the success of their llama model now, is is they could have been a more aggressive version of open source. So, so they should have just simply said, so Google, like Android is open source, but like there's a lot coupled with Android in terms of the software updates to having default Google services. The even more aggressive approach would have said, hey, here's this open source OS to compete with Android. We don't require Facebook services because you know that people are going to install the Facebook app anyways, because it's a social app, so it's going to be there. We're going to make it anyone can do it and you don't have to add any of these services. Maybe it could have out competed Android. Right, like, but that would have had to have just been like a, a relentless mission, and obviously that is like fantasy world in a sense of like, who who knows if that would have worked. But I think in retrospect, getting to a place where they could have been a, a better competitor from a hardware standpoint, because I just don't think that the Oculus acquisition has translated into Facebook being excellent at hardware, and I think now they're potentially going to be in a commodity game with Android and Samsung and everybody else that's not Apple.
0: Would you have made a different play in 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 crypto? And there's a, there's real hope that pay, you know they would be a big player in payments.
1: I wouldn't have made a big announcement about it. So I was at Coinbase in 2018 when they they announced it. I don't think they I, I even expected the blowback that they would get, like the Maxine Waters, the global set of financial regulators who really get upset about it. I would have just like slowly turned it on, right? Like make make everything run on this internal blockchain internally and and do the payments. In in WhatsApp and and Messenger and make them cross compatible and whatever and then actually be able to say hey we're announcing this blockchain like it's been running internally for three years it's completely safe uh, here's all the KYC and all the other kind of stuff that makes regulators happy but but very very difficult for regulators to crack down on something that already exists versus basically the kind of like ask for permission version which is hard because. Uh, with financial regulators, you you can't really do the move fast and break things. Uber, Airbnb, ignore the law conveniently. Like you go to you go to prison with federal violations. But I do think that the kind of like start quietly and, and iterate might have been a, a better strategy there. And maybe it never would have happened just because the the blaming Facebook for Trump was so great that like you would have never got it passed. Here here's another version. Like launching Libra today post FTX, it might be a little hard. But a, a world where you had a divided government, a house that was um, Republican controlled and Senate that, you know, Democrat controlled, maybe wouldn't have had less, less of an issue, right? Because they really got stuck on the House Financial Services Committee, which now is run by, you know, Patrick McHenry, who's a Republican
0: and who's pro-crypto. The, would you have had the same kind of strategy um, PR-wise around the metaverse stuff? Or did it make sense to really reorient and really take a stake in the ground there publicly before having something.
1: I think that the version of the Quest that could have maybe kind of made the leap a little earlier is just really go all in on gaming. But I think the challenge with gaming is you have these tentpole consoles, right? Plus PC gaming, but but realistically, the average consumer is is more kind of like oriented towards Xbox and PlayStation. And you have these big titles. I mean, this is why Microsoft is buying you know, Activision Blizzard and like you, you kind of lock up these these marquee names like Call of Duty or, you know, the games that Nintendo has. Obviously, Zelda is a good example that just got released and like, I want to say the Switch is a 10-year-old platform. So it's not even the technology as much as the, the IP is actually the thing that can, that can really drive sales. And so, is Facebook going to be able to go build the IP or, or a gaming culture to be able to go do that? Probably not. But maybe there's a version where like, I don't know. Maybe they would have bought Epic, and Fortnite now like is there, and I think Epic has um, Unreal Engine. I'm pretty sure is is like Unity and Google. Unreal are. I think the two two ways to make games, and Epic has had a huge fight with Apple, and so that could have naturally been something. And Tim Sweeney, who who runs Epic, is is pretty pretty legit uh, from just like having built games. But I don't know. I think it, I think it's really hard because I think. It, my my to model for this is very much the trio BlackBerry until the iPhone. And then like once that happens, like the game's off and, and everyone's going to switch over. And the reality with that is also like when Apple has this hardware and it's going to continue to iterate, you're going to have the big AAA game developers invest time because that market size is going to get bigger and bigger. And, and so they'll probably have like really cool titles, right? Like Call of Duty actually in VR. That's really good.
0: And I actually, don't even know
1: if Call of Duty is in VR right now, but maybe some experimental
0: mode. Zooming out in this conversation we had offline before around sort of closed versus open ecosystems. It's interesting to think about, you know, what are kind of, when a closed ecosystem wins versus open ecosystem, like in um, both with the original kind of, you know, Web 1.0 and with with crypto, there were people who were trying to move to private blockchains and the, you know, sort of the blockchain, not Bitcoin movement. And then also there was, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, the open internet would never work and it would have to be private. And so open ecosystems went out there, but then in other sort of you know, with web 2.0, um, you know, closed ecosystems uh, won. I- I'm curious how you reflect on, on sort of the closed versus open ecosystems in, in different, uh, different analogies. Enterprises
1: and developers prefer open ecosystems. And so to the degree, all things equal, they're going to naturally trend towards the the kind of comparable, version that is open or open source and things like that because it means that they have more control like they don't have someone underneath them that can actually extract money in the value chain but consumers prefer closed because closed usually means that it's vertically integrated and all of the weird quirks of the open ecosystem get solved but get solved in a proprietary way i think the only example of this of a mass appeal consumer product uh that is a an open-ish ecosystem we can get into the merits of it is email uh so consumers use email and that network effect is extremely powerful but basically everything else consumers use like at mass scale just go through the app store they're all not built on open ecosystems with the exception of the web which is like in some ways such a low level thing because it's allowing different closed ecosystems to pop up right like Airbnb is a website, so it's built on an open ecosystem, but it is uh, very much a closed pool of liquidity. Uh, and even in crypto, I think that like one of the reasons we haven't had any consumer use cases break out is crypto by itself being an open ecosystem is not useful for individuals. It's useful for developers and people who want to be able to tap in to and you know a group of users. And so this is actually something foundational for our thinking with Farcaster is, so the goal is to build a protocol, right? A protocol with a billion plus people using it every day, that long-term mission. can take us a while to get there. If if that's what you're trying to do, the only way you're going to get there is you have dozens, hundreds, thousands of apps and services building different uh, experiences, right? Some of them are competing, others are orthogonal at all different scales, venture-backed, independent developer, completely open source, you know, nonprofit in, in, in that world. So to, in order to build that ecosystem, what is the thing that the developer, regardless, right? Like the venture back or the indie developer, what are they most interested in? They want people to use their software, right? Like for the profit seeking, like that's how you make money. And for maybe less, you know, like a nonprofit seeking, it's, it's building something and then having people use it. There's, there's a lot of satisfaction and status that you get out. Our, our view is the only thing that's going to attract developers to Farcaster is if we get a group of users that are there and using the app every day, right? Like the thing for a social protocol that's interesting is daily active users. And so in order to do that though, users don't use a protocol, they use an app. So we've actually built an end user application, right? Like you can use Warpcast, our app, uh, and it feels just like Twitter for the most part, right? With a different set of features and and diverging more and more over time, but that's the way we've gotten to 10,000 people on the protocol. And, and some percentage of those people are using the protocol every day, which has now started to attract some group of developers that are kind of interested in getting those, those users to potentially use their app and then kind of a bet on the future that the, the protocol grow. And I think that that is why Apple has been so successful with the iPhone as a developer platform is not because, um, people want to pay the 30% tax or have these draconian rules around like you can do this or you can't do that, right? Like they would much prefer Android or something a little bit more kind of open ecosystem, right? And Fred Wilson has a very famous post about this, like from the earlier days of mobile, why he prefers Android. He's, to, to his credit, he still uses Android, but, but he's like, oh, the open ecosystem is going to win, right? And this is part of that Clayton Christensen thing. He, is is the, the challenge though is the people who have money predominantly use iPhones, and the people who spend money on apps uh, use iPhones, and the people who, if you don't spend money, who are good for advertisers use iPhones. So from a monetization standpoint, developers focus on iPhones. That's most apps, when they start, if they don't do both, they do iPhone first, right? Snap, very famous for that. Instagram was very famous for that. We, we did that even with Is um, iOS first. And, and so I think the challenge is, e- even though the open ecosystem appeals to the developer, and so if you're a developer who uses the phone, you're going to probably want something more open, the average user doesn't care. Like they, like for them, the technology is like more invisible in the sense that it's like it, it's, it's like helping them accomplish a certain set of things.
0: So it's really about who, wh- who can create the best experience and, and whether opener, you know, can match the experience of close
1: Yeah, and look, these things build on each other. I I brought the uh, the example of Airbnb being a closed experience built on top of the open web, right? But there's there's like, you can go through all the different layers, right? So Windows was a completely closed experience as an operating system. And then Apple comes along and has grown its share and, and Google the same, built on like core, like Unix, Linux, right? So it's like a more open system underneath proprietary operating system on top that you can only get for their devices. Uh, Android is open so, source. Uh, Apple is closed source on iOS. Then you have the app store layer, which like that itself is is closed. But then from there, you can have apps that are a little bit more open, right? Like you can have an email app that is using open systems. So you, you got to go through the whole value chain. But I think if, if you start from a consumer side of things, they just care about like, what is the user experience, and does this solve the problem that I'm, you know, trying to solve? Right. So it's like TikTok is entertainment. Like this is entertaining, right? Like you don't care if TikTok is an open ecosystem built on an open protocol. It's like I want to spend 30 minutes just mindlessly going through videos. Like that, that, that's that's the job to be done there. Whereas if I'm thinking about cloud infrastructure, I probably want something that I'm not locked into one vendor because if I get locked into one vendor too much then then they have a lot more pricing power over me and they can kind of dial up their their prices. And so like you see this a lot with like uh, fintech vendors, right? Like you're you're a company like Coinbase and then you use a whole bunch of other fintech vendors to, to help you scale. And then those fintech vendors are like, well, we we want to grow our revenue, so we're just going to dial up the cost of a verification or a linking a bank account. Like what whatever they're doing payments and now it's like ugh like i wish i'd been in a more open thing and so i think that enterprises are a lot more sensitive to these things and not every case you're going to have an open alternative but like the reason open alternatives tend to do well in enterprises people are sensitive to platform risk because they know that that's going to be an area where they can have their own margins get pressured
0: and so what does it make you think about wh- whether ai will be predominantly o- open or closed
1: well there's this, also this concept of the like cathedral versus the bazaar I think it's like Eric Raymond or something like that. And and I think um, the basic example is like a cathedral is a centralized project built like top down and, and you know, this grand structure and planning. It takes years to go do and right below it in the, in the kind of marketplace is usually the, you know, just the chaotic bizarre and, and what comes out of um, the, the decentralized and, and more. Yeah. Just, just chaotic experience of things, which is open source. I think, with AI, there are two things. So one from a just pure brain power talent until we get to AGI, like humans are going to be the ones that move this stuff forward. And so now open source actually has some models like stable diffusion is, is doing some stuff. And I actually don't have like a like a great mental uh, map of all the different models that are out there, but Llama from Facebook, which was it was like they published it, but then they didn't publish the weights and then someone leaked the weights. And so it kind of like made, made the map complete so that other people could build on it. I think the UAE just released a new model, which is kind of crazy. I don't, I don't actually, I haven't even had a chance to dig into that and like understand if it's like real or not. It's something called Falcon. Um, but, but if you take that as the, the bulk of, of kind of global brain power that doesn't sit within a couple of these centralized companies, then I think that you're going to have a lot of iteration. Um, and GitHub makes this really easy and, you know, social media, be able to share it and discover it, Hacker News, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's really ramping up. And if you're not one of these big companies, you get you get all the benefits of the innovation and improvements for free. However, the the big constraint here is GPU capacity. And GPU capacity is being tied up by the big guys who already have privileged relationships with whether it's the Chip foundries themselves, like uh, TSMC or or the Nvidia, who's actually making the actual finished product in terms of the thing that you're going to sell, and has the CUDA architecture thing. And so, if if you know Microsoft and uh, OpenAI and Google and Facebook um, are able to just kind of buy eighty to ninety percent of the new capacity that comes online in the next few years, then it's going to be really hard, assuming you believe that the, the only breakthroughs are just going to be a linear increase in the amount of GPU against the new, newest models, then the, the closed ecosystems are probably going to do, do better um, from the breakthrough stuff. That said, I think like if you use Clayton, Clayton Christensen's uh, innovators dilemma, there's probably not going to be a great market for like the simple way to think about it is like chat GPT-3 is cheaper to use and that's why it's like you get that and then gpt4 they limit the number of queries and you can imagine five and six like it's just going to be more and more expensive for the the versions whereas the the lower end stuff like the market for that is just completely commoditized by the open source uh world and so the open source world is going to actually work its way up the, the value chain as things get either more efficient or there's just more gpus in the world not controlled by the big guys
0: let's talk about the debt ceiling what what's that that debate what's actually happening there how should we think about it
1: yeah look to me this is 100% political theater like no one was serious about not paying the debts and it's a kind of thing that like the media just loves covering because it creates stress for people and like you know like oh the you know the market thinks that there's going to be potential for default and the the ratings agencies might downgrade the debt and like all this kind of stuff that's just it doesn't actually matter. If they had passed the bill a month ago, no one would be making a big fuss. They passed the bill last night. The the debts, you know, the, like we would have run out of money by the fifth. So so they passed it two more days from now, or you know, like Monday. Like, is that is that that much worse? No. So so now it's just like a, a function of it's it's like people are bored and it's something to do. Basically, the like the hardcore conservatives don't like it. The hardcore progressives don't like it. So it, it it's just kind of standard, you know, business as usual, Washington, where like a, a like the establishment group of people like continued on with doing stuff, and there's like a bunch of theater and, and kind of people doing Twitter threads about it. But I think like there's a lot of and, and we talked biology about this. It's like oh, the U.S. debt is unsustainable. So first of all, debt is relative, right? So we are not Weimar Germany. There is no version of uh, the UK. Or, or France or the US or other powers that are in a stronger position out of World War I. We are also, so we're the reserve currency. So like when we print more money, it actually inflates away all the debts. And you have to have a shift in how people park their money. And yeah, you can find some random articles. The media that we don't trust then writes about, uh, you know, people using the yuan or something to displace the reserve currency. And we're using that as, as, uh, as fact. And I think that, like, the reality is, like, if you're uh, a, a large pool of capital outside of the U.S., where do you stick your money if 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 the U.S. is you know printing too much money or the debt is out of control?
0: There's no great place.
1: Right. So so if, if there's no great place, you're probably going to put it in an American big tech that has AI, right? Because that's, that's productive. Like, I think it's, like, since the beginning of the year, the S&P 500 is up, you know, I don't know 10% or... 15% and then like the big four, big five are up 60%. Right. And it's just like, okay, so where is that dynamism anywhere else in the world? Like, is there a company in Europe that's, I mean, Europe is trying to ban uh, AI, right? Like they're shutting down nuclear plants. So, so the, like the money is going to be parked where there is growth and where, where the money can grow and like China had it for a moment and then they started, you know, disappearing CEOs and then having them fall out of balconies. And so like, I, I think outside of finding growth in other places, people are going to continue to put their money in, in the US, which means like if you put it in a US stock, the government can tax those companies, which means they, they can they can continue to fund the debt. And so I I think like I'm sympathetic. I've been in crypto for 10 years that, to the argument that like, oh, crypto is the solution to this. But the revealed preference from large pools of capital is they're not going and parking their money as a hedge, right? Like we, we've just run into several different crises uh, around ra- ra- the dollar, right? Like inflation um, and then the banking crisis that we just had and then we just had this. W- where's the where's the Bitcoin pump? People want to think of the US as like a household and like what advice you give to like To be a normal middle class person is like don't have too much debt like you don't live beyond your means that's not practical advice for the world superpower that also is the reserve currency and also has the basically the kind of only area in the world where there's actual real meaningful innovation that you can put into a capital market structure that actually has a rule of law behind it right so it's like yes china has some innovation not a place but most people want to park money in terms of like TBD, if you can actually get get the money out. And so that can change. But until you give me like a credible place that can actually absorb lots of capital where people are excited about the, the growth potential of it, it's going to be the US. And so the US can continue to print money.
0: Chamath said our debt to GDP ratio will be closer to 200 than it will be to 50. will get to, you. you believe that?
1: Yeah, I actually, I don't agree with your mouth on a bunch of things but i heard that clip and like i mean he, he eviscerated friedberg friedberg takes the point of view where the dalio book which extremely conflicted dalio has like a big china bowl it's it's like oh well empires in the past it's like oh okay so are we, are we really gonna just try to say like history rhymes and repeats and and like just because Ray dalio had a research assistant take like how did the dutch empire fall it's like Okay, like I, I think that there are a few other things here at play. You know, we're we're living in a world where the technology difference between different superpowers is is pretty significant. And 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 I'll fully admit, like the Chinese actually are probably the most interesting competitor of the U.S. You know, obviously since the Soviet Union, but in terms of like okay, this hypersonic missile stuff, like that's potentially a, a technology advancement that the U.S. doesn't have. We we have SpaceX. <laughs> we're we're I think making progress on 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 the next frontier space, which potentially also can be weaponized faster than anybody else, and we're not even having to do it at the national level. Like we're we're letting uh, venture funded companies fund it, right? Like, yeah, we 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 pay them some amount from NASA, but at this point, SpaceX is is increasingly more and more diversified in terms of just serving commercial customers through Starlink. People, it's a mood affiliation argument, and it's like I I'm fundamentally frustrated with the direction the U.S. is is going. So therefore, I'm going to uh, backfill my beliefs on, on, on fiscal policy, when the reality is, this is kind of how it's always worked.
0: We've said mood affiliation a few times in, in this podcast, it's it's worth defining it. But by, by that, do you mean this idea that people just have this kind of like, uh, you know, are you my enemy? Are you my ally? Like they have this gut emotion about something, and they use reason and to kind of backfill their emotional feeling on something?
1: Yeah, it's totally it's it's uh, Tyler Cowan's work, but just like mood affiliation, I, I think it's it's, um, it's kind of like a subtle right? Like you're not like if I if I was to be like, oh, that's just mood affiliation. Like you don't even know how to respond to that. But if you actually think about what that means, it's just like, okay, I want to feel this way, so therefore, I'm going to like come up with a set of beliefs to 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 support it. Like climate change is mood affiliation. No one actually is is that detailed in the science. Like a Very very small percentage of people are right. But like you, you can't tell me you read unsettled and then read the most, like, pro-climate change book, Al Gore, if you didn't have a pre-existing opinion and know what the politics were, and at all, uh, kind of look at that and go, oh, maybe, maybe there's, like, um, some more work to be done here to figure things out. And, and remember, Unsettled, that book is written by Obama's climate czar. So it wasn't like it was, like, some crazy Republican guy. Like, it, 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 it he, like, worked for Obama. And so, like, mood affiliation is just, like, oh, like, I'm a, I'm a good liberal, like good liberals believe in in saving the planet and climate change is is bad for the planet. So therefore I'm going to go do that. Whereas like you can actually have a version of climate change where it's just like, okay, separate the um, the millenarian, you know, the end of the world, extremely Christian. Like once you see it, you cannot see it. If, if you just like, there are actually a bunch of premises that I think are useful. So one, like, a world where we have electric vehicles that we, and, and lower dependence on fossil fuels that further reduces our dependency on a bunch of countries that frankly behave badly and, and are not really kind of like American values or we, we want to kind of be beholden to, right? Just like think of the countries that, like big oil producers, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, like let's, let's get out of that business completely. And even better, we could be exporting all of the oil that we have and actually be, you know, bringing more, more uh, money into the U.S. Like that, that would be a kind of like big win. Uh, second thing, air pollution. So Patrick Collison has this amazing thing on his website, which I was astounded that he has like such a great personal website given that he's running Stripe. But there's, um, if you just like, I think it's like Google Patrick Collison Pollution this is like a universal issue. I don't think you could find any Republicans or, uh, Democrats who would really disagree with this idea that like, wow, like pollution seems to be killing people early, right? Like people are worried about like rising sea levels. Pollution kills like people prematurely, like in, in the like millions or I don't know, maybe it's in the tens of millions per year globally. Like let's get rid of air pollution. Where is most of the air pollution coming from? A lot of it's because we are using fossil fuels for, for our energy production. Right. And so like I think that is like the the, the model to approach this stuff with is like let's make f- civilizational progress. It's like let's stop burning this stuff that's like really pollutive and like basically makes us beholden to these people that geopolitically, morally, whatever you want to take it, like are great. That's the that's the the argument to win. And instead we get this like like a wag the finger like you you don't care enough. And it's like you got Leonardo DiCaprio showing up to. Uh, an environmentalist event, in the prius of the electric car and then hopping on his jet. okay, it's like it, it, it's mood affiliation and so I think like uh, or or the nuclear plants in Germany, right? <laughs> just it's it's absolutely insane. they shut down all the nuclear plants to only then uh, replace them with coal. and yes, they're in theory going to replace it with solar and wind and they've made a lot of good progress like Germany relative to most countries like has actually put the capacity installed. The reality is is that it's not that sunny in Germany, and the wind is intermittent so at some point, you're going to have to have baseload, which means what they're going to do is they're going to import it from other countries. And so if the other countries are France, then 70% of that power is going to actually be from nuclear. So the Germans can can have this like fake moral version of we don't have nuclear power, but if they're buying from the European market for their baseload, because sun doesn't shine at night and, and the wind can stop. And battery technology is not at a place where you're going to be able to have grid level capacity just from the kind of like wind and, and solar. And so... Contrast that to Finland, where like extremely progressive country, they just turned on a nuclear plant and they had negative electricity prices. They literally had to pay people to offload electricity from the grid because they were generating too much electricity. Like that's how we should be approaching it from a society standpoint. That's progress, right? And instead it's like you have the the same people who are talking about climate change are the same people, you know, from an environmentalist group standpoint, they're they're the ones uh, supporting NEPA sequa in california you can't build housing all that stuff is that's all red tape that's put in place in the 60s for for some good intentions right like the the silent spring like the the bird eggs dying because of what is i think ddt or use so it's like and then the clean air act which by the way is, is put in place by richard nixon so not like the paragon of of uh progressive values there but but it should be a. We should have a cleaner world, a less polluted world. But like, the fact that people want to shut down nuclear power plants in the U.S. and then they don't want to actually go build, you know, new new stuff. Like, uh, you know, I have no, no patience for these people.
0: But that that's mood affiliation. It reminds me of this blog post by uh, Scott Alexander, Slate Star Codex, called uh, "I Can Tolerate Anything About the Outgroup," and he, he he chronicles in that post how. Um, when Margaret Thatcher died, people were so mad. They were more mad at when Osama bin Laden died. And he's asking himself, why do people hate Margaret Thatcher more than Osama bin Laden? And um, it's because Margaret Thatcher is the is or they hate Donald Trump more than he's the outgroup, right? Whereas Osama bin Laden is just a guy in a, you know in in another country. And so it's this idea that we're not rational um, as it relates to. You know our allies and enemies or, or views and another example is like you know this idea that ideas like when we evaluate a concept or, or evaluate what's true our brain isn't naturally like you know super rational in terms of what what is actually true and looking for truth first we have to train our brain to do that what our brain is using ideas for is to give us more status basically i i was someone who i almost studied climate um i, I was the person who was going home and lecturing my parents about you know plastic water bottles and stuff like I was you know lecturing people about overpopulation which is dead wrong but all, all this stuff and what these t- what these kind of ideas were were tools to show that I went to college that I was uh, you know a fancy college where my parents didn't that I was morally a, a better person and you know you see this with, with vaccines too in terms of how it switched like as soon as someone of a lower status believes something I want to separate uh, you know distinguish my status by believing the opposite of, of, of that thing. And it's just so fascinating how within a decade, the overpopulation and the climate stuff has actually just like shown to be like incorrect on its own premises. And um, like, you know, I remember back, you know, there was all this uproar about the US not signing the Paris treaty, like we were seen as not not being forward on climate when the US is the only major country to hit its targets as a result of fracking, which people hate hated, right? And so that really just popped the bubble and has there been any sort of reflection, like, I wonder at my climate class in college, if they're still teaching the same thing that they were, they were teaching the the problems of, of overpopulation and how we needed to, you know, get off and, you know, not, not pursue nuclear and, um and, and, and all the stuff, because it's fascinating how disproven it has been. And yet how little reflection there has been in the process where actually the concern is underpopulation.
1: You're right. In the sense that it's, it's left coded. It's, it's, it's in group status signaling. It's trying to show how sophisticated, how much you care, like the components of woke ideology is about like, you're acknowledging the kind of like set of things that this group cares about and, and you're paying homage to that. That's what people do when they go to church, right? So it's a, it's an ideology that you're you're part of and it's very tightly coupled to the professional managerial class. So if you, if you live in a coastal city, like these things are important to show that you're sophisticated, right? It's going to help you from a dating standpoint, it's going to like a job standpoint, like you you have to play that game for the most part. You cannot be an outgroup person winning within the professional managerial structure. With with climate change, I want to point out there this like I don't want this to turn into this like this is climate change denials. Like temperatures have increased. Like, do we have an exact reason for why? No, like it's not actually settled. The book I think does a pretty good job of that. Should we be reducing our our dependence on fossil fuels? I think that independently, regardless right. of whether it's contributing to climate change, yes, that, that that seems like a logical and actually beneficial thing to society for a variety of different reasons, right? And so that's where I think it's like being able to just step back and separate things for their component parts, and not necessarily have to get everything beamed down to you by like a, a party platform and an ideology. That that that, in my view, that's freedom. Like you you don't have to like say oh well, i'm a republican i'm a democrat like it's just like no i'm me i can kind of evaluate each thing and i can go as far as i want in terms of getting informed about it and then and then come to a, a point of view right mm-hmm. um like we talked with michelle i don't think most people want to spend the time to do that right like they we're all status seeking monkeys and basically what we're looking for are what are the shortcuts to getting the status okay if i parrot this set of beliefs coming from a small set of whether publications or accounts on Twitter or, or, you know, high status friends that I have, my status increases.
0: And status within a tribe. And because we all want to be part of, part of communities and communities used to be bonded around things outside of political beliefs, like maybe religious beliefs, as, you know, people don't bond over religion or a lot of elites or, you know, people who went to college don't, don't bond over religion. They, they tend to bond over more, you know, political beliefs, political. But,
1: but, but but just like a, a cultural, right. So political is this in, in the kind of like substructure of, of a broader cultural thing. And this goes back to Twitter, right? Like we always, every episode has to go back to Twitter is like, if you're an intellectually oriented person, Twitter is where you, you get that beam set of beliefs, right? It's like the media feeds into that, but like also the dunks, the, you know, the current thing, whatever's happening. And you follow a coded set of people that represent your kind of worldview or kind of like your tribe. And then, so therefore getting exposed to that every single day has a pretty big impact. I, I, this is the funny feature that everyone always talks about. I want to say Josh Elman actually most recently put put this out. It's, you're completely capable of doing this on Forecaster and and I think some of the other decentralized social media companies because ultimately it just matters about like is the graph open, but it's the ability to view the world through someone else's eyes, and and it's a little tricky because some people like don't really follow that many people and they use lists so you don't know what their lists are. But like just make the deposit that people are following kind of like the people that they're mood affiliated. You can actually just go build on Farcaster, like a show me how DWR sees world. I follow a bunch of people on Farcaster because I'm trying to understand what's going on with the protocol. So it's not necessarily like my tribe, although Farcaster itself is kind of a tribe, but a a version of you, if you could do this with my Twitter graph, then you can actually see kind of what I get exposed to. The one wrinkle though, is that the more there are algorithmic feeds, which are based not on who you follow, but your revealed preference of who you bookmark, who you like, how many times you watch that weird video, then that gets harder and harder to observe per person. And the only company like in the world that actually knows that is, is, um, you know,
0: the, the person provided. I do want to close by referencing a tweet that you alluded to last week or reading a tweet. It's the Zach Cantor tweet, where he says, uh, one huge drawback of nuclear power is that it doesn't dismantle the systems of oppression. It only produces clean energy. This makes it unsuitable for solving the climate crisis, which isn't just about the environment, which, which is funny because also at the time when there were lockdowns uh, for covid people thought and still think that there will be lockdowns for climate because it's just such a strong tool to both you know lecture people and get status as it we were describing but also to um, control people um and so when you have something that can both be a, a device it's like a, it's a wedge issue that you can use to get other things whether it's control or whether it's sort of You know, more government funding for sort of you know, or anti-cop promote anti-capitalism some way. And so that's why people are are dubious of when it's used in the wrong way.
1: So if you just go look at the text of the Green New Deal, it's like you if you were just just dispassionately step back and don't attach any politics to it. Just read this document. Read the science. What percentage of the things proposed in this like plan, and it's high level, but like map to the science. I don't think um, global temperatures care about strong union paying jobs. Like, like sorry, like whether union or not, the, the temperature is going to increase or decrease based on a, a bunch of other factors. And so I think that's where, and this happens with both parties, by the way. So I don't, I don't want to pick on progressives, although I tend to pick on them more is, is it's just politics. And so like people are going to wrap it up in whatever it sells and then get, gets, you know, passed. And so, um, in the case of the Green New Deal, I don't think that would ever happen. But you know, crazier things happen. I mean, Obama had a supermajority, right? Like imagine, imagine Biden with a, an actual supermajority—60, 60, 60 Democratic senators—we would have been a very different situation. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin uh, might might have uh, staved off a, a hyperinflationary period.
0: Maybe, maybe we'll close on this. Uh, just a preview of future episode. Um, I'm uh, starting a new podcast with Noah Smith, who came, came on our show. And the first episode we're going to do is an uh, overview of Biden's term. Um, and so um, that'd be also fun to do on uh, Moment of Zen as well. Um, and upcoming, we have Catherine Boyle, uh, Mike Solana. Uh, we're talking about the liberal arts. Um, we have Nadia Asparova talking about her piece on the elites. Um, Alana uh, from Tablet uh, talking about Antonio's uh, conversion to Judaism and, and her, her piece on Saudi Arabia. So yeah, those are some uh, some upcoming episodes. Dan, this is uh, maybe we'll wrap here. This has, been, this has been great. Thanks for doing it. Secureframe is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Secureframe helps you get SOC2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much, I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of Secureframe. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more, wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy, or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.